Amen. Uh, Zoe, could you just give me a, just a water here at the bottom by you, please? Amen. Just give me a moment. Church, could you turn with me to the book of Ezra, please? Tucked away somewhere in the Old Testament is the book of Ezra. When you're there, please give me an amen. You know, uh, when we do our um, partnership uh, classes, uh, there's something we try to make clear about, about taking up the right hand of fellowship, is that when Paul spoke about receiving the right hand of fellowship, uh, he mentions how Peter and the apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship that he should take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's the point of connecting with ministry, connecting to local houses, that you get to partner in spreading the gospel and supporting the gospel. So I want you to keep that in mind. Uh, have you found the book of, of Ezra? Amen. Amen. I'm, uh, I'm proud of you guys. Usually it takes a while. Ezra chapter 1, we have a long way to go and little time to get there. We might get a little technical this morning, there might be pockets uh, where it might just sound a little bit like a history class and from my memory of, of history lessons, they were quite, you know, uh, like a lullaby from time to time. So I have a big challenge here in putting some color on, on some historical narrative here this morning. So uh, track with me, uh, we're going somewhere. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just give you an overview of, of Ezra, um, share some keys into understanding historical narrative or genre like we usually do, and then we will um, discuss our Bible topic and then we'll get straight into the sermon. Amen. Ezra chapter 1, and let's read from verses 1. Now in the year or the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation or decree throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah who is among all who is among you of all his people may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and build the house of the Lord God of Israel he is God which is in Jerusalem, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits 
God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock. In other words, they didn't just say, go, go build a house. Let's help fund the work. Let's help fund the project in building the house of the Lord. So anyway, they encouraged them with articles of silver and of gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things besides all that was willing, willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midradath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Shezbazar is another name for Zerubbabel. And I want you to keep that in mind. And if any one of you are planning on having children, that's a good name for your kids, Zerubbabel. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind and a thousand of other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shezbazar took with the captives who were brought from Jerusalem to, oh, sorry, from Babylon to Jerusalem. Amen and amen. Can we pray? Father, I pray that the family of Rebirth, I hope that they have been reading the book of Ezra as we communicated in the week. I pray, Lord, that you will just anoint this time together as we search out what the big idea is, what you're trying to communicate to us through this narrative, and I pray you just anoint our ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying here this morning. I pray that you anoint uh, this preacher this morning, this frail vessel, that Lord, you'll help us to, and you'll help me to turn people's ears into eyes. They may see the wondrous things in your law. Now pray, Lord, you just bless this time together in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen and Amen. Um, Reese, if you could just have the slides up. We're getting into this habit of using uh, presentations. Uh, Pastor Clint, who um, is recovering at the moment, uh, was the trailblazer, showed us as preachers how we can preach with presentation slides. And so like last week, I said I'm gonna try and out-presentation him, amen. Okay, so we are in the book of Ezra and the most important thing we need to do is understand the structure and overview of Ezra. So the book of Ezra falls into two main sections. These two sections range between chapter one to chapter six and from chapter 7 to chapter 10. That's how the book of Ezra is divided. Can you all see that? Want to pay a visit to the optometrist in the week? <laughs> okay, we're getting there. Amen. So these two main sections, these main two sections deal with 
the return of the Jews from chapter 1 to chapter 6. And chapters 7 to chapter 10 deals with the reformation and transformation that happens in the worship community of, of Israel. These two main sections fall into two different time periods. That's important to know. So the entire book of Ezra spans over a period of 80 years. The first section of Ezra between chapters 1 to 6 falls within a 20-year period. Then there is a gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7, which is a gap of about approximately 58 years to 60 years. And then we have the, uh, the section in Ezra which deals with the reformation and reform of the Jewish nation. Now Ezra is not introduced in the book of Ezra until chapter 7. That's when Ezra comes onto the scene in chapter 7. But he is the narrator. He is the author of the book of Ezra. Are you still with me? The main theme or big idea behind the book of Ezra is that God is a promise keeper that God keeps his word and I want you to remember that I've thumbed through Genesis to Revelations and I've not come across one broken promise of God it is easier for the heavens and the universe to stop functioning than for God to break a single promise. In fact, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will stand forever. Amen. God is a promise keeper. And so the historical period between chapters 1 and 6 falls into the period of 516 BC before Christ was born. And the key figures in the book of Ezra that you need to keep in mind and that we will unfold uh, during this three-week series is uh, the governor of Judah which is Zerubbabel and the high priest which is Joshua and you have two prophets that minister to Israel during this time when they are released from uh, uh, exile and that is Haggai and that is Zechariah. These are the two prophets that minister to Israel or Judah during this period. And so from chapters 1 to chapter 6 you deal with the return of Israel to their homeland. Remember they've been in captivity under the Babylonian rule for over 70 years and now by royal decree of the king of Persia they have been released to go home and rebuild the temple of God. And from chapter 7 to 8, we have Ezra come onto the scene. The temple is already built. Over around 50,000 people have made their way back to Jerusalem and to Israel. And now Ezra comes onto the scene and he leads a second return of about 2,000 people. But when he gets there, he sees that they've been so long in Babylon and under Persian rule that they've forgotten how to worship. They've forgotten uh, what it is to worship 
God in a right manner. And so he sees all these compromises and changes in the worship community of, of Israel and it breaks his heart and so he gets down to reforming and changing this. And that's the big idea behind uh, the book of Ezra. What we need to know about Ezra is that Ezra is a high priest, a descendant of, of Aaron. What we need to know about Ezra is that he's also a scribe. He's the most notable scribe mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Ezra probably came into Jerusalem, it said, 20 years after the decree of the king of Persia, of Cyrus. And so around uh, 458 BC, assuming that King Artaxerxes I was in power, that's when Ezra came into uh, Jerusalem. And so Ezra's mission is to restore the worship back to the Jews and the Jewish community. Uh, there are three books that fall into this period. It's the book of Ezra, it's the book of Esther, and the book of Nehemiah. These three books fall into the period where the Persian Empire was the dominant power of the day. And so the challenge for me was when I was reading through the book of Ezra, uh, is that I had to read the book of Esther too. And I had to read the book of Nehemiah too. Because all these three books fall into the same era and it's the same time when the Persian Empire was in power. And if you know your Bible history, remember we came to the book of Daniel? Do you remember? We came to the book of Daniel and we saw that Daniel had a vision of the four successive kingdoms that will come into play. He had a this, and Jeremiah prophesied of this, and Isaiah, that uh, you know Babylon would, would become the power, dominant power of the world in that time. And so he had this vision of Babylon. After Babylon, the Medo Persians would take over and conquer Babylon. After the Medo Persians would be the Greek Empire that would take over. Do you remember that? Yes. And so now we are living in the time where Persia is the dominant power. And in 539 BC, we have the Babylonian kingdom that is invaded by the Medo-Persians by King Cyrus II. Now, when we look at this particular timeline, this is how Esther fits into the equation. And so you have in 516 BC, you have the temple of God rebuilt. And you have the Jews deported from uh, Persia. For, uh, about, was it, how many did I say? What, was it 20,000 Jews that, that, that left uh, Persia and Babylon and came over to Jerusalem, right? The temple is built. Now, once the temple is built, you have still a few Jewish people, well, the majority of the Jewish people still living in what was known as Babylon at the time, in Persia. And you have Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia at the time, and Haman connivingly and dubiously, uh, you know, convinces the king of Persia at that time to eradicate all the Jews across the, the kingdom Amen. and the known world. This is after the temple has been built and restored by Zerubbabel and Ezra. And 
you know the story. Mordecai sends word to Esther and says, if you keep silent and do nothing, don't assume that you and your family are going to escape because all the Jews will be eradicated from the known world. But who knows that maybe you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And so you know how the story unfolds and God uses Esther to save the Jewish people. And so the events that occur in the book of Esther happen between uh, Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 in that 60 year gap and time frame. And then you have Nehemiah that comes onto the scene afterwards and he builds the walls around Jerusalem. And that's how the books of Ezra, Esther and Nehemiah fit in the timeline of the Bible. You have Ezra, 15, uh, 516 BC, and then you have Esther, the book of Esther during this period, the events in Esther, and then you have the book of Nehemiah during this period of time. Does this help, church? Yes. Is this helping? Now, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah must be seen as one book and not two books because there's no known Hebrew manuscript that separates the two books. Yeah. It's only until AD 1448 that they decided to separate the books. Now, Ezra appears in Nehemiah from chapter 8. And you see these two men in mission to rebuild the house of God, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but more importantly, to rebuild the people of God. You'll notice there's a pattern sometimes in history, and you'll see this especially uh, in the events of, of what occurred during the exile with Babylon. You'll see that when, when we went through the book of Daniel, uh, there were three deportations of the Jews from their land into Babylon. There were three uh, return or, or movements of the Jews through to uh, Babylon. Uh, so in 605 BC, you have uh, the Babylonians uh, bring through Daniel uh, and, and the whole uh, young men of Judah and Jerusalem and he brings them into Babylon. Then nine years later, he brings another company of Jews into Babylon and another eight years later, Finally, he brings the last crowd of Jews into Babylon, and this time Nebuchadnezzar tramples and destroys Jerusalem completely. It's temple, it's walls, not one stone is left upon another. And then you see it from the book of Ezra, there's also three returns. And so history has this pattern. And so the first return of, of the people is led by Zerubbabel. Yeah. It is 50,000. Uh, Jews, sorry, they are led by Zerubbabel, who was a governor in, in per, in, of, of the Jews, of the Jew, Jewish people. And so he lead, leads a company of Jews back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple. And then Ezra comes onto the scene, and he leads about 20,000 people, or 2,000 people, and Jews from Persia or Babylon right back to Jerusalem and then lastly you have Nehemiah that takes a smaller group through that builds the walls of, of Jerusalem and so you have these 
three key figures that depict the restoration of Israel. And what's important to know between the relationship and events of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the events are not particularly constructed chronologically, they are constructed theologically. In other words, as a narrator, Ezra shows us that the temple was built first. The temple had to come first. After the temple was built and rebuilt, the Jewish community had to be reformed and purified. After the Jewish community is reformed, then the outer walls of Jerusalem had to be built. And so you have the building of the temple, the building of the people, the building of the walls, and all this reaches a climax in Nehemiah chapter 8. Where the temple is built, the walls are built, uh, the, the Jews now gather, and they gather around Ezra, who begins to read the law of Moses for the first time in over 70 years. And the people gather from morning until evening, and they are standing, hearing the word of the Lord. Yeah. And the Bible says that they begin to weep and mourn because there is such a distance between what is being taught and explained in the law of Moses and how they lived. And this sparks a revival for Judah, for Israel. Amen. Now in the same way that the people gathered in this uh, crescendo in the narrative, in the climax of the story, how they gathered around the world, this was a picture of how one day the Jewish people would gather around the word that became flesh. And so we have that overview of what took place between the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. Now what's important for us at this stage to, to know that when we approach the book of Ezra, we have to, in fact, when you approach any book in the Bible, you have to first identify what genre we are dealing with. Because if you don't understand what genre type we are dealing with, you are prone to misunderstand the text. There's no way you can read any text of scripture without identifying what is the genre. Because the Bible was delivered to us in genre types. And so you will never interpret a fairy tale like a historical document. If you know it's a fairy tale, and, or you're watching a film and you know it's a science fiction movie, you're not gonna walk away from that movie and really assume we are in a galaxy war, Star Wars. No, you understand genre type. And when it comes to interpreting Ezra, we have to be able to interpret what's known as Old Testament historical narrative. Are you still with me? Yeah. The term narrative simply means story. Yeah. We have to know how to interpret 
stories. Now we grew up hearing stories. You grew up hearing stories. We grew up telling stories. Everybody loves stories. The best way we communicate is through stories. Our hearts traffic in stories. And so we grew up in children's ministry hearing Bible stories, Noah and Moses. And so we become accustomed to Bible stories. And it's Bible stories that have shaped our theology. And it's Bible stories that have shaped our understanding of God and how God relates to man and how man relates to God. And perhaps the danger in us being familiar with storytelling is that we don't see and notice the errors we make when we approach the Bible. But I believe we can do better to understand Old Testament narratives. Amen. Amen. There are a few mistakes and pitfalls when it comes to reading historical narratives. Firstly, uh, avoid these few pitfalls. Firstly, don't allegorize narratives. Don't allegorize narratives. These are stories of what God has done. That is sufficient. Don't look for special symbolic meaning in everything. Yeah. Yeah. Second of all, don't decontextualize a narrative. Don't ignore the context yeah. and the immediate context by focusing on a few specific words and phrases. Because if you focus on small pieces of the narrative, you will miss the intended meaning of the author. Thirdly, don't moralize narratives. Narratives are designed to show how God's plan unfolds in the grand scheme of scripture and history. Don't look for or exclusively for moral lessons of right and wrong because that can detract us from the plot behind the story. Don't personalize narratives. Now this is where we are guilty. When we approach the Bible, we tend to be self-centered. You know? And our self-centeredness is sometimes seen in, in that, you know, we expect to experience the same outcomes of David and Goliath and of Israel in, in, in their storyline. But like, like we've said this over the, over the last few months, is that when we read the scriptures, we've got to be able to draw out from the scriptures. And that's called exegesis. Exegesis means to lead out. You read out from the scriptures. Then most of us at times are guilty of eisegesis. Eisegesis means to read into the story, to read into the Bible. And so when we uh, shared on Psalm 1 uh, last week, we spoke about blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. To read into Psalm 1 will be to say blessed in our time means Fancy car, big house, good job, big salary. That's reading into the text. And so, 
exegesis is reading out of the text, eisegesis is reading into the text, and then you have what Pastor Israel calls Gnosticesis. Is that we like to see ourselves in every story. And so we like to read ourselves into every story. And we've got to be careful of not personalizing Old Testament narratives. Are you still with me? We also got to be careful not to confuse the line between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. When a passage is descriptive, it is simply describing the details of what has happened. When something or a passage is prescriptive, it is trying to specifically teach us something. And here's an example of that. You have the story of David and Goliath. Goliath, you know, is, is blaspheming the gods of is the God of Israel. He's mocking God's people. And what does David do? David opposes him with a sling and a stone, and he and he flings a stone into the head of Goliath, and he chops off the head of Goliath. Now, if we take this passage as prescriptive, we will assume that we have to really go and chop off the heads of our enemies. But this passage is descriptive. So if we take 1 Samuel 17 as prescriptive, what we do is we look at the main lesson as Scripture's teaching. That we overcome our challenges by the name of the Lord and our faith in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's a few principles of interpretation and how we interpret Old Testament narratives. Firstly, you must find the plot. What is the storyline? And as preachers, we have a bad habit that when we get into the stories of the Old Testament, we look for five steps to the blessing. We look to three ways to transform your business, you know. And you can't find those lessons in Scripture, but you will ignore the plot. What is the grand overarching theme of the story? What is the author trying to convey? Old Testament stories are not simply a list for right and wrong. There is a story unfolding and unraveling. And so when we come to the pulpit, we must be very, very sensitive to reveal the plot. Or else the listener never gets to grab what is the storyline. Okay. So the plot is the foundation of the story. The plot is the story. And more specifically, how the story develops and how the story unfolds and how the story moves in time. If we don't know this truth, we will fail to fit the lessons of Scripture into its meta-narrative. We must know how truth fits into the grand scheme of the plot and storyline. And let, let, let me give you an example. Um, have you ever heard the scripture, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord? Yeah. Okay, that's found in Zechariah chapter 4. Now, I've, I've heard that preached many times in miracle crusades. Hey, in fact, I've preached that. 
saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, say to the Lord, nothing is impossible. Rise up and walk and be healed. I pray that. But when you refer to Zechariah, remember earlier I said that the prophets that ministered to uh, Israel during the time of the Persian, Persian Empire was Haggai and Zechariah. Now turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. And let's read from verse 6. So if all you do is take the truth of not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, you miss the plot. You miss the storyline. Reading from verse 6. So he said to me, he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who is Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. What is, Judah, what, what is Zerubbabel known for? He led thousands of people from uh, the exile, from Persia, Babylon, right through to Jerusalem. What is Zerubbabel known for? Rebuilding the temple. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Verse 7, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring the cap the, for the capstone with the shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. For he, for who has despised the days of small beginnings? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line, the measuring stick in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit relates and is speaking to Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple. Yeah. And so the, in the rebuilding of the temple, the work had halted. And so the prophet Zechariah gets up to declare the word of the Lord and he said, this is the word of the Lord concerning Zerubbabel. Yes, there's a big mountain before you, but that mountain shall become a plain. And it's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by power, but it's going to be by my spirit, say the Lord of hosts. Amen. Here's another famous one. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plan to give you an expected end. Whose favorite memory verse is that? Come on, don't, don't be shy. I see you on Facebook and social media. <laughs> Back in my, in my wife's uh, early days, she oh even got some God. ink, you know. It says Jeremiah 29, 11. I was like, babe, do you know what that means? Sure. <laughs> Jeremiah in chapter 25 and in chapter 29 is prophesying and he's saying to Israel that judgment is coming. Judgment's coming for your idolatry and your wickedness and because you've neglected the law to allow the land to rest. 
And judgment is coming by Babylon. And when judgment comes, you are going to experience judgment for 70 years. That's in Jeremiah chapter 29. For 70 years, you are going to be in captivity. So when you're in captivity, build houses, grow livestock, grow your vegetation, make babies, you know, flourish, multiply. But know that the plans I have for you are plans of peace to prosper you and seek the good of the city in which you dwell in. And don't listen to those prophets who will say it'll just be a year or two. But know that when you're going through the 70 years of exile, disjointed from your homeland, being castrated, young men castrated by the Babylonians, know that I have plans to prosper you. And so sometimes God don't take the trouble away. Sometimes you have to go through the fire. Yeah. And so be careful to decontextualize scripture. Are you still with me, family? Yeah. Amen. The list of examples is endless. Amen. So a plot, a plot moves through about six, six to eight different stages. And they're not always in the same order. <laughs> and a plot shifts through these elements. Firstly, in a storyline, you have a stage called exposition. This is where, at the, typically at the beginning of a story, you have the characters introduced, you have the stage being set, you have uh, the main conflict uh, being described, you have uh, you know, all the details coming together to, to form the, and support the storyline, and then the storyline moves to the next stage where there is a rise and developing action. Okay, this is where the storyline begins to, to pick up momentum towards the third stage of a plot shift, which is the climax. Now, when you get to the climax of a storyline, we are faced with the main major event that occurs. Either it's an enemy that needs to be defeated, either the, the, the main character is confronted with the challenge or is confront, confronted with the source of, uh, of conflict, but at the climax of a plot shift is, is where you have the most drama, the most intensity and excitement in a text, in a narrative. And then once a storyline has moved up to its crescendo, it then dips. And then there is a resolution in the storyline. But you must be able to pinpoint the moment and the, and the time of the resolution, how the crisis was resolved. And then you have the falling of the action, where the storyline seems to be shutting down, like when you get to the end of Job. The storyline dips. And when the storyline dips and all the loose ends have been, have been tied together, you have what's called the denouement or the conclusion. And it's usually ended by a concluding paragraph of the narrator and storyteller. One thing you need to pay attention as well when we come to, to plots in the Old Testament is story archetypes or what's known as plot motifs. Okay? 
In other words, a, an archetype or plot motif is defined as an original pattern, model, or symbol that persists during the, the storyline. And this usually represents an idea or concept that's already existing in, our, in the culture of the time. And so when you apply this to the storyline, you begin to see a pattern that occurs in, in the narrative. Now, one of the uh, archetypes that we can apply to, to scripture is known as the heroic motif. Okay. In other words, usually in a narrative or storyline, there is a hero. There's a hero. In the account of Joseph, Joseph was the hero. In the account of, of the nation of Israel, David is seen as a hero. And Ruth and Esther and Abraham take this heroic motif and theme throughout scripture. And then you have another archetype, which is the death and rebirth archetype of scripture. This is where a hero has to endure some kind of danger or death and then he is reborn again. You know like the movie Apocalypto. Have you ever watched the movie Apocalypto? It's one of my favorite movies but he goes through a death period. Looks like he's defeated and the, and the tribe is defeated but then out from the mud he's reborn again. And you'll see this, uh, this pattern occur in scripture time and time again even in the life of Joseph Joseph is sold into slavery but then he's reborn again in a few years time you also see the tragedy motif where we have people and characters fall from innocence that's the story of Adam and Eve that's the story of Saul Saul started off anointed and called by God you know, his head and shoulders above all the men in Israel. But Saul had a fall from grace. And so you'll pick up these motifs and that, that support the plot and storyline of the Old Testament. And we have to pay attention to them. The list of these archetypes are vast. One other key to interpreting Old Testament narrative is that we have to reconstruct the historic, uh, historical and, and cultural uh, setting and context. In other words, you have to go back in time. You have to jump in your time-traveling machine called your imagination. And you have to try and understand what was it like being in the time when the Babylonians were the world power of the day. What was it like to be disjointed from your family and your home and be stripped of everything, your national identity? What were the customs of the day? What were the manners? What was the food like? What did that Babylonian plate of food smell like when Daniel was offered to eat from the king's kitchen? What wine were they serving? We have to learn to rebuild the historical context. When you read the Bible in its historical setting, it will come alive. Yeah. It will come alive for you. And like we always say, the Bible was 
not written to you. It had an original audience, but it was written for you, with you in mind. Amen. Amen. Another key to interpreting historical narratives is to look for repetition. And sometimes you'll find certain events repeated or phrases repeat, uh, repeated through a storyline. And um, when you read through the book of, of Judges, what's the one phrase that's repeated? Over 20 times. Every king that arose did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's the repeating line and pattern in the book of Judges. And so if something is repeated in an Old Testament narrative and storyline, what the author and narrator is doing is putting, is putting that text in bold. He's putting it in italics for you. And he's saying, pay attention. Lastly, well not lastly, sorry. Uh, we have something called time and space. Remember I told you when, when you read through uh, Esther, there's a division. There's a divide between what the, the time frame and time gap, gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, when I read chapter 7, it just said, and in the days to come, Ezra, blah, 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 blah. But when you read that, there is a distinction between, you know, how the content of the, the narrator is arranged and the time gap between their content. So you didn't know that between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is there's 60 years. It's like reading the book of Acts. You know, have you ever read the book of Acts? Uh, it's like a high action, sequence, action movie. Action, you know, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He comes to his disciples in Acts chapter 1. You know, he promises them, hey, the Holy Spirit is about to fall with power and he ascends to heaven with the clouds and then the Holy Spirit pray, uh, falls on 120 uh, men and women in the upper room and then boom, they come out preaching the gospel, speaking in tongues and boom, uh, Peter's healing a man at, at the gate called Beautiful and then boom, uh, you know, Paul is on the scene doing miracles after miracles, Peter and them are preaching but you read through all of that and you don't consider that that's a time frame of 33 years. The book of Acts covers a time period of 33 years. It took you an hour to read through all of it. And you assume that all of that high action drama took place in a year. And so we come with that expectation on the church. And say, hey man, we must be seeing miracles every service. Hey man. No, but when you read the scripture, you have to take into account time and space. Time and space. Amen. Are you still with me? Yes. Another key to interpreting Old Testament uh, narratives is the point of view. In other words, the narrator is, or, or let me put it this way, Longman puts it this way and explains, the narrator is the one who controls the story. His is the voice through whom we hear about uh, and we hear about the action and the people of the narrative 
through the narrator. Through the, the narrator's point of view, we get the, des the description and perspective through which we should evaluate everything connected with the story. In other words, when Ezra picked up to write his book, he takes on the device and persona of a narrator for the first six chapters. And then he introduces himself in the second half of the book. And you have a shift between third person writing and first person writing. So the difference between first person and third person point of view is that in the first person point of view, you have a scenario where the narrator is a character in the story and he's telling it as though he is the person from the story. And he uses the pronouns, when I went into Judah, when I did this, when this happened to me. He's speaking in the first person point of view. But then you see in the first half of, of Ezra, where Ezra takes on this persona of a narrator, and he speaks from a third person point of view, where the narrator is not part of the story. He speaks from outside in. As though he himself is not Ezra. And so Hebrew writers took on that approach when they wrote scripture. So we have to pay attention to point of view. And then second to last, we have to pay attention to how the Old Testament narrative classifies characters. Very, very important. And literary scholars have identified the following types of characters. First, you have what's called protagonists. Protagonists are the central characters in the story. They are indispensable to the story. If the story is about Abraham, it's about Abraham and no one else. He is the central figure. And then typically what you have in a narrative is, uh, is what's called antagonists. You have an adversary, a main adversary that comes up against the protagonist. And we have to pay attention who are the villains in the storyline. And then lastly, we have what's called the foils. These are the characters that heighten the role of the central character. And usually the foils provide some kind of contrast between them and the protagonist, the central uh, characters. It's like in a story of the Dark Knight or, or, or Batman. You have Batman and Robin. Yeah. And, and Batman is the protagonist. He's the central character. And Robin is just the foil. He's there to heighten the features and characteristics of the main central character. So when you see Robin being scared, it highlights the courage of Batman. And that's the purpose they serve. And lastly, if not importantly, when you read through Old Testament narrative, please understand that there are three flaws. There are three flaws to the Bible storyline. Firstly, there is a bottom floor. The bottom floor is where we get to see how God is communicating to us personally through the story. That's the bottom floor of scripture. We're living in an age where everything must be me, me, me and I. But the bottom floor of a storyline in scripture is you. 
Secondly, the middle floor of Scripture is where we see God dealing with the nation of Israel. It's, it's, you cannot read through the Bible and not take into account that God worked through a nation. The Bible is a story about how God worked through the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament narrative and it brings forth his son from the Jewish nation so that when Jesus is speaking to the, to the woman at the well, he tells her that salvation is from the Jews. Salvation came through the nation of Israel. They are the custodians of salvation. They, you know, God used a specific nation at a specific period of time to bring forth his son. So we have to pay attention to the middle floor and how God formed a nation out of Abraham and how that nation grew and matured and, and conquered Canaan and, and, and how that nation disobeyed God and was sent into exile and released from exile and went into a dark period and then came under the power of Rome and then uh, during the time of Rome Jesus was born from a Jewish family. We have to pay attention to the middle floor but the top floor the penthouse floor of Old Testament interpretation and narratives is the meta-narrative of Scripture that God has a plan to save the entire world through Jesus Christ and how is Jesus Christ revealed and the purposes of God for salvation in the Old Testament narrative of the Bible and that's the top floor of Scripture Amen, Amen. you still with me family Okay, now as a Bible topic, I think it's very important for us to understand this. We're going to look at the timeline of the Bible. And you ever ask yourself, what's the purpose of genealogies? You know? Um, Abraham begot uh, Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph. If you ask yourself, what's the purpose of a genealogy? A genealogy has a twofold purpose. It shows you the family tree. But also, a genealogy shows you chronology. And chronology, when we look at history, is the backbone of history. In fact, chronology, as one scholar put it, is important because it, it helps us connect Bible events to actual dates and periods in history so that you know it's not a fairy tale you're reading. So the legitimacy of the Bible and of Scripture depends on whether these events actually happen and whether they happen in actual history and chronology helps us to verify that these events actually took place. And so without chronology, it is not possible to understand completely Old Testament narrative because it's the backbone of history. Okay, so let's put the entire Bible in two minutes. God help me. Into perspective. Are you still with me? Nobody lost. No one sheep that has gone astray. Okay. So you have the early world. 
under Adam and Eve. You have the building of the Tower of Babel, Adam and Eve sin, they cast out of the garden, and then you have what takes place in the age of the patriarchs in Genesis chapter 11, where God calls a man by the name of Abraham out of the chair of, Al of Chaldeans. Okay? And God in Genesis chapter 11 cuts a covenant with Abraham during that period, and this period is about 2165 B.C. So from Abraham, the patriarchs are born. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then Joseph is thrown into a pit, and he ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt, uh, he's, the, he's the governor of Egypt uh, during this time frame. And then the whole family of Abraham end up in this era, in Egypt. And if you know your Bible storyline, you know that they spent 430 years as a family in Egypt. And in Egypt, they grew to becoming a nation. You see that? From there, you know the story, Moses comes, you know the movie, Moses comes and approaches Pharaoh and he says, let my people go that they may worship me. And they eventually, through several plagues, Moses and the nation of Israel, by this time they were roughly close to two million people. And they are released from Egypt from a period of 430 years with all the wealth of Egypt. And they come into the era where they wander in the desert for 40 years. It could have been, could have been 40 days, but because of, of disobedience and murmuring and complaining, it took 40 years. And this is where you get to read about about Moses and Joshua and the building of the tabernacle. They pitched the tabernacle and they established worship and, and they were given the Ten Commandments and, uh, and uh, they just grew further as a, as a nation. And then from there, Moses dies. Yeah. Moses dies and Joshua comes onto the scene and we have uh, the history of Joshua and the children of Israel in the book of Joshua. And they it takes them 200, well, this period between the conquest of Joshua, which took about seven years to conquer Canaan. Uh, we have this period between the conquest of Canaan uh, and the period of the judges that took about 299 years. Now, when you read the stories of, of Gideon, when you read the stories of Samson and Jephthah, all that takes place during this period. And each judge tried their best, level best, to steer the nation to obedience to God. But they kept on complaining. They kept on turning to idolatry. And then eventually they looked upon the other nations. And they saw that the other nations have kings. Why don't we have a king? Yeah. And so they asked for a king. And they, and they get a king. They get Saul. And you know the story how Saul... Uh, disobeys God, God removes the kingdom from Saul, then David comes, comes onto the scene, and that was a royal, uh, what they call a royal uh, kingdom period where the people of God enjoyed a beautiful reign of God in worship under David. And his son is born. But between Solomon, the royal kingdom, and Isaiah, the kingdom splits. 
The kingdom splits under Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, because he increases the taxes of the people. And there's a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. So Israel is no longer known as just being Israel. They're known as being Israel and Judah. Israel being the northern kingdom and Judah being the southern kingdom. And so you have two kingdoms, a divided kingdom which was prophesied by Ahijah in, in 1 Kings, I think, chapter 5. He prophesied of the divide in the kingdom. And then during this phase, just before the exile of Babylon, just before the exile of Babylon, you have the prophets Isaiah. They prophesied to the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel. And he says, because you have slipped into idolatry and wickedness like the other nations, God is going to remove you from the map by the Assyrians. So that during just before the exile, Isaiah, that's where the book of Isaiah comes into play. Isaiah prophesies the downfall of Israel and Israel are captured by the Assyrians and wiped off the map. And Jeremiah is also living and ministering to to Israel during this time but Jeremiah's ministry is more towards the south of the kingdom that's to Judah and Jeremiah prophesies you know, whatever you read in Jeremiah or Isaiah relates to either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom and the exile that's to come and so Jeremiah comes onto the scene and he says what happened to Israel Judah is going to happen to you too because you followed suit in your idolatry and wickedness. And Jeremiah prophesied that this judgment coming, but not from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians. And what happens? The word of the Lord was fulfilled. And for about, well actually this is not 40 years, it's 70 years, late night editing, forgive me. <laughs> so for a period of 70 years, Judah is in exile under Babylon. And this is where we get um, the book of Daniel. Daniel comes into play during the exile. So Daniel is a prophet during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And he managed to serve all three, four kings during the time of the, of the exile. And the prophet that ministered to Israel during the exile was also Ezekiel. Ezekiel didn't minister any other time yet, but during the exile. So now you know where the book of Ezekiel fits. Ezekiel fits here. And Daniel fits here. And your first chronicles, second chronicles, you know, kings all fits here. You even have Jonah over here. Jonah's this period here. Just before the exile, after the divided kingdom, you have the story of Jonah before Israel is wiped off from the map. And then you have, during this exile, you have the, you have King Cyrus and his decree, right over here. Cyrus makes a decree and he says the Jews are allowed to go back to their hometown after 70 years. They're allowed to return to Jerusalem. And here's where you have Zerubbabel, Ezra, 
Nehemiah and Esther. And towards the towards well towards the this Maccabean revolt era is the 400 years between uh, Malachi and Matthew. And so you have all Malachi, Joel, Haggai, Obadiah, you know those books we don't like to read that stick together in the Old <laughs> Testament. They all minister to the Jewish people when they return back to their homeland. And so when, when uh, it was a Zechariah who prophesies and says, I will restore what the caterpillar and the canker worm and the palmer worm have eaten. He's prophesying that during this time when they've returned to the land. And he's saying, God's going to restore these things back to you. Amen. And then we have the era where Jesus comes onto the scene. Amen. Does this help? Yeah. Is this helping? Yeah. Let's put the Bible into perspective a little. Okay. So don't place Ezekiel yet. And don't place Jonah yet. You know where they fit. Okay. Now let's get to our text. You can put the projector off. Thank you. Turn with me to Ezra 1. Are you still at Ezra 1? Ezra chapter 1. We're going to cover in a short space of time chapters 1 to 3. Next week we'll work from chapters 4 to 6. And then uh, Pastor Clint will take us home. Amen. Okay. So in chapter 1, we have in verse 1, where Cyrus decrees and proclaims that the Jews can return to their homeland. And what does he do between chap chapter 1, verses 1 to 4? He also calls the people to fund the return. Those who are not going, those Jews who are not going with the Jews returning to Jerusalem by royal decree are asked to support the work and the rebuilding of the temple because whenever you want to do something for God, it requires support. It requires funding. Amen. I'm not going to go off on a tangent here with an offering talk. <laughs> but the gospel doesn't live on fresh air. Amen. <laughs> and so by decree from verses 1 to 4, we see Cyrus. Then we see the Jews from verse 5 to 6 returning to Judah. And then we see in verses 7 uh, to 11 where they start restoring the temple. In chapter 2, we have a full detailed report of all the families, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, even the horses and the mules and the camels, the number of them that returned to Jerusalem. In chapter 2 verse 2 we see that Zerubbabel takes 49,897 Jews with him under the first return to Jerusalem. He's the governor under Cyrus and also possibly Darius and the return from Babylon to Jerusalem was a four-month trip. If you read chapter 7 verse 9, it was a four-month trip so it wasn't like uh, we're going overnight. And so many Jews were reluctant to go with him. Because firstly, they grew up now. There's a generation that grew up in Babylon. Grew up under Persia. They know nothing about Jerusalem. The younger generation. 
So they don't want to go with because they are accustomed to the nation they're living in. They're accustomed to the food. They, they have no remembrance or knowledge. They just hear stories from the older generation about what it was like to live in Jerusalem and to drink from the wells of Jerusalem. And so they refused to go with. So the majority of the people that, that stayed behind in Babylon supported the work with all the resources they had. And then in chapter 3, we have where the foundation of the temple is laid and we have where the altar is rebuilt on its ancient foundations. And then we have towards verse 10 and 13 of, of chapter 3 where the foundation is laid, the altar is built and we have how the, the younger people rejoiced. They rejoiced because the foundation was laid. But then you see how the older generation looked at the foundations and started to weep. Yeah. Because they said it looks nothing like the glory of the temple of Solomon. Yeah. And that's where Zechariah prophesies and rebukes them. And says, don't despise the days of small beginnings. Okay, so when we get into chapter 1, verse 1. We read, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, at the word of the Lord, by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, uh, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might make a proclamation throughout all, the king, all of his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me. And he has commanded me to build him a house. This is a heathen king. Keep that in mind. He does not serve the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a heathen king. So he serves many gods. And he says, The Lord has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. He's encouraging them to go. You don't have to stay under uh, you know, my stick immediate rule. You can go. Go build God a house. And he says, whoever is left in any place under my empire and rule, where he, uh, in any place where, where he dwells, let that man in his place help with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I want to bring your attention to verse 1 because the narrator, Ezra, is being very selective about his choice of words and very intentional. He's saying historically what happened in the first year of King Cyrus when he made that decree and proclamation that the Jews can go back to Jerusalem. What occurred under the decree of Cyrus must be seen through a theological lens. Because he says, all this happened that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Was, all this transpired. As Jeremiah prophesied in chapters 25 and 29, 
All of this happened and was fulfilled by the word of the Lord. And that's how he wants us to interpret history. He wants us to put on our theological lenses and say, what occurred during that time was the hand of God and the word of God being fulfilled. And though it was a proclamation of a man, he's telling us that it was God-ordained. And yes, it was a proclamation by a man that Israel was released to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. But it was foretold by the prophets and ordained by God. Now there are two indicators and statements that give us this theological indicator. Firstly, in verse 1, that the word of the Lord was fulfilled by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. And secondly, verse 1 says that it was the Lord that stirred up the spirit of the king of Persia, Cyrus. It was the Lord who stirred up his heart. And so these are the two things to keep in mind. The prophecies were fulfilled and God had providentially moved on the heart of Cyrus. So even though Cyrus proclaimed and allowed the Jews to go back, it was all the doing of God. And so he announces to us, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies. And you must know that Jeremiah lived years before the exile. In Jeremiah 25, he prophesies and he says, Therefore thus says the Lord, this is in Jeremiah 25 verses 8, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send you and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring you into this land and against the nations of, of, of all the earth around. He will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment. Uh, and the hissing and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth. I will take from the Jews the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. And then he goes on to prophesy about the Babylonians, Jeremiah, and he says, Then it will come to pass that after 70 years is completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the, and the lands of the Chaldeans for their iniquity. And God was saying to Jeremiah, I'm going to remove the Babylonian power of the day. We see that prophecy fulfilled of Jeremiah in Ezra 1, also in verse 29, or chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Now one of the most persuasive arguments that upholds the integrity of the Bible and the reliability of the Bible is the fact and truth that the Bible in its prophecies have been 100% accurate. There are roughly 2,500 prophecies in the Bible spread over a collection of the books from various time spans of over 2,000 years. 2,500 prophecies over a period of 2,000 years. And over that period, 2,000 of those prophecies have been fulfilled to pinpoint accuracy. 
We read about the prophecies of Babylon, Nineveh, Tyre and Edom. All those prophecies were fulfilled, some even before those nations came into power. We see the prophecies of the Ninevites where God declared through the prophet Nahum in chapter 1, he says, in the final hours of their drunkenness, this nation will be destroyed. And so history will tell you that in a drunken party when that nation was celebrating that they were conquered. We have the Ninevites also being destroyed by fire in Nahum chapter 3. God spoke to Nahum and said that Nineveh is a city that's going to be destroyed by fire. We saw that the destruction was due to fire. The prophecies concerning Tyre, uh, where they'll be attacked by many nations before it occurred, happened in Ezekiel chapter 26 when he prophesied there. The prophecies of Daniel of the four successive kingdoms came to fulfillment in Daniel chapter 2. The prophecies of the goat who will come from the west in Daniel chapter 8 verse 5, where it says this goat with a single horn between its eyes uh, will come through and he'll be great and at the height of his power the large horn will be broken off, which speaks to uh, the Greek god, the Greek king uh, or emperor Alexander the Great. And history will tell you that his death was untimely, as the scriptures have proclaimed. And, and we read about his death that was caused through drunkenness. Uh, nobody could, could diagnose the cause of his death, but he died at 33 years old at the height of his conquest, an untimely death that Daniel prophesied of in chapter 8. But of all the 2,000 prophecies that have been fulfilled in the Old Testament, the greatest of these prophecies relate to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 3, God spoke about the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. Moses in Exodus prophesied it is a prophet coming greater than him. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says in a vision of his he looked and there was one that appeared to be like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and this Son of man was given all authority and glory and sovereign power over all nations and peoples of every language that would worship him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Isaiah, during the time of the exile, prophesied that his one coming will be born of a virgin. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, and Mighty God, every one of those 2,000 prophecies were fulfilled because the word of God is utterly reliable and completely authoritative. From the fulfillments of Jeremiah's prophecies and the decree of Cyrus, this marked a new beginning for Israel after 70 years of captivity. Cyrus makes a decree and this starts the story of a new beginning because God is a God of another chance and a second chance and so this nation has a chance to be reborn this nation has a chance to start again and there's no harm in starting again and sometimes in life we have to start again sometimes in life you have to re rebuild your business rebuild your marriage Sometimes you have to repeat the year yeah. in school. But God gives us the opportunity to start again. So the story of the Israelites in Ezra under the decree 
of King Cyrus is a story about a nation who has a chance to start again and rebuild. And what's beautiful about chapter 1 is that we see God keeping his promise. And God showing mercy to Israel again because God is rich in mercy and God keeps his promises. Now you'll notice between verses 1 and verses 7 of chapter 1 we have a pattern. We have a phrase repeated. And if you were listening very carefully earlier, you'll notice that repetition is a virtue of the narratives. So whenever something is repeated, you pay attention because in verse 1 it says that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Verse 7 it says that God stirred up the spirits of the people to move back to Jerusalem. And here we have one of the major theological themes that come out of Old Testament narratives and it's especially seen in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther. We see the theme of God's providence. The providential hand of God that works on the hearts of men and works behind the scenes. What is the providence of God? The providence of God is how God works behind the scenes in everyday life to achieve his purposes. There are times where God works openly and there are times where God works covertly behind the scenes. And so we see the phrase, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus and stirred up the spirits of the house of the fathers of Judah. And Ezra is letting us know that it was God working behind the scenes on the hearts of men. And oftentimes we like to display the providence of God because, because we always want God to move in a spectacular way. We always want God to work in a miraculous way. But just because we don't see God working openly in our public, in the public eye, does not mean that He isn't working. In fact, God works more behind the scenes than openly. If God worked openly all the time, wouldn't we want to intervene and meddle with His plans? And so He works more by providence than by miracles. And sometimes the best way to illustrate the providence of God is to contrast it with a miracle. A miracle is defined on how God uses the supernatural and spectacular to achieve His purposes. But the providence of God refers to how God works through natural things to achieve His purpose. And Paul told us that in Romans 8 when he said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. God does His best work behind the scenes. And some of you have been discouraged. And you feel that life hasn't moved along the way you want it to. You don't have the right job yet. You don't have the right money yet. You don't have the right man yet. Or you don't have the right woman yet. But if you hold on to your faith in God and His promises, you will soon come to find out that everything is working in your favor. 
And so God stirs the heart of the king of Cyrus and he makes the decree and Israel is allowed to rebuild. The question we must ask ourselves whenever we get to every passage and the question we ask ourselves every, every Sunday, and I'm going to say this in closing, is how was Christ revealed in Ezra? How does the gospel tie in with the book of Ezra? Now, when we go through the Old Testament narrative, Christ is revealed in two ways. This is not considering typology and, and you know, allegory. No, no, no. He's revealed and anticipated through prophecy. Prophecy anticipates the coming of Christ. The second way in which Christ and the Messiah is anticipated through, uh, through the Old Testament narrative is by what theologians refer to as redemptive history. And what do I mean by redemptive history? Redemptive history refers to a series of events by which God redeems his people. And Augustine put it this way, that redemptive history constitutes of the mighty acts of God that he performs towards a special people. And those acts are the acts by which the people come to know that he is a savior. So through the providential dealings of God through Israel and with Israel, you see a series of redemption acts that build up and lead up to a more fuller picture of redemption. McClellan put it this way, and I quote, redemptive history is simply the history of redemption. The historical progression of events where God sovereignly decrees and providentially leads his people to the final redemption of creation. So everything that occurred in the history of the Jewish people and through the times of, of, of Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther even to the point where the king of Cyrus made a decree. All of those redemptive acts of God towards the nation of Israel was setting the stage for the grand finale of redemptive acts. Where the Bible says in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that they might receive the adoption as sons, that they may cry out, Abba, Father. Now take this into consideration, that when Isaiah prophesied and said Emmanuel is coming, and that upon his shoulders will rest the governments of this world, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, everlasting father. When Isaiah prophesies that, he prophesies that to a nation that's going into exile. 
when Daniel prophesies and sees the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 7, he sees the vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, where all people of the earth in different languages worship him. He's in exile. And so the promise of a Messiah is proclaimed and promised and prophesied during the time when the nation has been stripped of everything. And so when you look at what occurred in the book of Ezra, you see a pattern. You see God's redemptive work at play. In fact, scholars refer to the return of the Jewish people in Ezra. They refer to it as the second exodus. Just as Pharaoh allowed Israel to return or, or leave Egypt in order that, that they may worship, Cyrus allowed the Israelites to leave Babylon. Just as Pharaoh permitted the Israelites to leave with silver and gold, so Cyrus decreed and encouraged all the Jews to support with silver and gold. We see how Pharaoh, the Bible says it was God who hardened the hearts of Pharaoh. We see how it was God who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. So we see this pattern in redemptive history where God works upon his people, Abraham's seed, works upon a remnant, and they are released from Babylon with one purpose, that they may worship. And that's how we see Jesus in Ezra. We see him in redemptive history that God says, let my people go that they may worship. That they may worship. And it's God who initiates the deliverance. It's God who moves upon Silas' heart. It's God who moved upon Pharaoh's heart. It's God who moved the nations of the world. Because redemption is always an initiative of God. We can never save ourselves. Amen. Amen. Can we stand this morning?